Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. Our guest today is Trish Yonker, who holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and is a licensed counselor in 12 states. She's also certified in integrative medicine for mental health. In addition, for the past 10 years, she's been a foster mom and legal guardian to eight children aged 10 to 25 years old, and she recently had two new grandchildren. Taking her academic and professional work, combining it with her personal experience, her counseling practice specializes in supporting foster and adoptive families through telehealth telehealth help, and in-person options. You can learn more about their story, her family's story, in her book, The Call to Love. It's available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes, or at her website, trishyonker.com, and Yonkers spelled with a J. Trish is a valued, prolific contributor to Help One Child, authoring blog articles and appearing as a guest on our Bite Size Encouragement podcast. She also recently um, presented at the Replanted Conference, and she does typically do that annually with a breakout session. Um, Help One Child has hosted the simulcast these past two years, so we don't get to see the breakouts, but we hope one day she'll be on the main stage. Trish, we're so glad that you're here to discuss nutrition and food strategies with our children from hard places. I know this is something we can address sooner rather than later, especially as we're moving into holidays that often include using food and meals as such a central part of our celebrations, gatherings, and ways we might be giving thanks. So welcome and glad you're here. First of all, just kind of came up against, you know, kiddos moving into our house that had different eating patterns than we did. Um, in my own journey, you know, kind of just getting into my forties and wanting to change some of my own patterns of maybe, you know, I was a girl that was really raised on Kool-Aid and then in my (laughs) forties trying to switch that over and drinking more water and then becoming a foster parent and having these kiddos moved in who had even, you know, just coming from a different culture, different community, had different eating. And so started doing a lot of my own exploration of what battles did I really want to fight? Um, what was going to be important in our house? Where was I going to compromise? Where would we be flexible and why? Um, and just trying to be smart and strategic in our house. And that actually led me to a season um, when I was fully staying home with our kids and, and not doing as much work. I decided to take that time to do some professional development. And so I received a certification in integrative medicine for mental health. Mm. And a large portion of that certification program talked about nutrition and how this food mood connection and kind of what we put in our bodies and how it impacts our brains. Um, So there's, you know, obviously plenty of people out there with more education than myself, but I think I've really tried to focus on that uh, professionally. And then now again, with my clients kind of looking at how we can make some simple changes in the kitchen that can impact our kids functioning. Wonderful. I love that you have that background. That's great. Um, And aren't we all on that learning curve of like what we learned in our childhood, early adulthood, and as parents, this is such a, yeah, different stages. So 
Um, for nutrition, can you maybe talk more about the two polarities that we must balance, as you like to say? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, food is comfort for almost all of us. And I think there's this polarity of, and I think I kind of shifted this when the kids first moved in where I was like, we're going to be healthy and we're going to eat organic food and we're going to eat a lot of vegetables. And um, I knew, you know, I hadn't done a lot of, you know, specific study in nutrition, but I knew that would be important for them and their growth. Um, at the same time, food is comfort. And so especially for our kids who had just gone through a significant trauma of being removed from their family of origin and living with us and, um, living in a different community in a different city and all the changes that were coming with that, I think sometimes they just really wanted food that they knew that they, it tasted the way they would predict it would taste and it felt good to them. And, and so I think there's a balance that is really important on those two polarities of wanting to serve really healthy, nutritious foods that will help their brains improve, um, help their learning, help their mood management, all of those things. And then on the other side, really having them feel like we hear them, we're listening to them, we know what they want. You know, for example, my kids love Takis, these chips, and I don't even like anything <laughs> spicy. So even that was like, I don't understand why you like this chip. Um, but that, especially sometimes they just really wanted a bag of Takis. And so if I'm going to be completely on that one polarity and, and say, no, we don't have any Takis in our house at all. They're just, it's full of chemicals and crap and it's not good for you. I'm going to lose that connection and they are going to start to resent me. And so it's figuring out how are we going to balance this? How can we do both of these things at the same time where I'm giving them comfort, I'm giving them what they like and what they enjoy, but I'm also trying to teach them and challenge them and help them grow and help their brains develop and heal from trauma through nutrition. Um, sometimes I use the example of coffee for, for most, uh, you know, Western people, coffee is such a, an addiction, right? Yes. So imagine if you moved out, you, you didn't have a choice. You had to move out of your house, move into a brand new house with perfect strangers. And in the morning you stumble out of bed and you go down to the kitchen and you're looking for the coffee maker so that you can make yourself a cup of coffee. And they come in and they say, oh no, we don't believe in coffee. Coffee is so bad for you. Do you know all the chemicals and it's addictive and caffeine's not good for you. So you won't be having any coffee ever in our house. And you're like, I just went through a terrible night and I'm sleeping in this brand new house and I can't even start my day with a cup of coffee. You probably would have a temper tantrum. That, sounds, so, that sounds horrifying. It sounds horrifying <laughs> to most people. Yes. And that's kind of what we do to some of our kids. When I say you can't have Takis in my house, they're like, are you kidding me? I can't have, you know, French fries. I can't have whatever. And so I think just kind of putting ourselves in their shoes and saying, you know what? especially if they just moved in, I'm going to back off a little bit, I'm gonna be a little bit more gentle with my strategies. And then maybe over time, after a couple of months, after a couple of years, we can really start to make some changes. But at the beginning, especially, I think you want to be sensitive and then slowly introduce the, these options that we're going to talk about today. Yes. And, you know, I my background is teaching and we had this ingrained in us that as a teacher, you want to start out stricter and you want to have all your classroom rules really established and then you could ease off once you have the rapport. But it sounds like 
Um, this is different when parenting a child who's experienced trauma or disrupted attachment. Is that right? Yeah, because I think I think our goal um, is healing that relational piece that's been damaged for them. And so I think you really have to look at choosing your battles. And, and I think we'll talk about some foods that might do both where they feel comforting and, you know, taste good and are nutritious. Um, but there's just coming in hard and strong and the rules, I think, don't serve our kids well at the beginning. Yes, yes. That's a really helpful, I think, shift probably for um, many of us, especially thinking of um, our own upbringings and just, yeah. you know, the shifts that we need to make to really care for and, and help these kids heal, like you mentioned. Um, yeah. yeah. Many times um, I know we need to um, help choose what is comfort food for our kids. Um, and um, you just talked about how that could look different based on if they're a new placement, if they um are older when they come to us, um, how long they've been in your house, maybe their developmental stage. Um, do you have anything to say on that about kind of developmental stages of like how your response might be different if you have a child joining your family? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think it's, I mean, even in foster care, right? Sometimes they tell you a 12 year old is coming and they come and they're actually nine. Um, so even when they tell you the age of the child that's arriving, sometimes it's not true, but on that same token, I think we have to look at their developmental age and also that it's, it's expected that there's going to even be regression of during a transition and placement. So, um, I think really looking at, uh, how they're presenting themselves, what they're asking for and kind of you know, in, if, if people are familiar with TBRI, you know, the concept of saying yes. And so if they're asking you for a certain type of food to say yes, and to even maybe you can say, you know, we don't always do this in our house, but you know what, I know you've been through a lot this week. And so why don't we go and get, you know, whatever food item it is that they're requesting at that time. I think um, being able to be open that way, especially with a child that's old enough to vocalize what they'd like to eat. I think can go a long way in building that relationship. And then later on, you can choose the moment to kind of talk about what is more appropriate foods for them. But um, a lot of times, you know, if they had a favorite childhood cereal and they're 16, maybe you want to go get that cereal for them at the beginning, just so that they can sit at a kitchen counter and, and eat something that's got some good, better memories with it. Yes. Okay. That that's really helpful. And I think it's good to remember the regression piece because I know uh, a lot of foster parents say, oh my goodness, this child's in our home and they're having all these behaviors and we were not told. And yes. it's, it's a good reminder that the trauma of removal or moving and transition can lead to that regression and it may not have shown up previously. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it might show up during transitions, it might show up during visits. There might be times where all of a sudden they they regress again. Um, and just being able to be flexible in your parenting and to notice that. And I think if at all possible to be able to talk to their, if they were coming from a previous placement or if they were coming, if you can connect with the biological family and just say like, what are their favorite foods? What do they like to eat? So that you can establish that comfort piece and help that um, flight, flight, fight flight and freeze response to calm down a little bit through food and to give them that comfort I think can be really good in, in initially 
Yes, yes. And um, how do you recommend that we as parents model healthy eating behaviors for our children? <laughs> well, I think, you know, like, like all the strategies I talk about, most of us who are in this type of special needs parenting, you know, parenting kids who come from hard places, we are also experiencing secondary trauma. We are also experiencing anxiety disorders and maybe we're taking Prozac ourselves. And so all of the principles I'm talking about actually all apply to us as well. So if there is, you know, um, something that's comforting for us, we also need to manage that polarity. And 20% of the time we let ourselves have that comfort food because we need it. Um, but 80% of the time, maybe we try to eat those foods that we know will support the serotonin production in our brains so that we can be at our best. And then even talk about it, even say, you know what, I've had a really rough day, but <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to choose to eat, you know, this, um, this egg omelet, because I know it's really good for my brain. And you kind of narrate that out loud so that the kids can kind of see us doing it and why we're doing it and why we make healthy choices and why we're choosing to avoid some of the trans fats um, and making that a normal conversation in the house. Um, again, being sensitive, it's not the only conversation in the house, but as we're doing it, we're modeling that for them so that maybe they choose to have it as well. I love that because we might not think of narrating it. Um, and we're just like in that transactional, got to cook, got to eat, got to yeah. feed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. And um, what are some good practices maybe around using food or treats as incentives or rewards? Or is that problematic, especially for our kids? Yes. So that, I think using food as a reward should always be done with caution. Um, I would never, like, I don't like to say never do it. Um, I sometimes have done it in um, more of a relational context. Like you and I can go out for dinner together um, and we can have that special treat and spend some time together. Um, but I, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of adults um, who then develop a reward system for themselves with food, where when they've had a rough day, they feel they have deserved McDonald's for themselves, or they choose to engage in more binging behaviors. Um, and that can kind of play out if it's reinforced over time through childhood. And so I think you just want to be cautious with it. I think, you know, your own kiddos, you know, their struggles. Um, and so I'd be real cautious with that. I think there's, there's, I love using like the love languages more as rewards. And so looking at what is their actual love language and what can really reinforce the behaviors that I'm looking at increasing and, and doing that through connection and um, things that'll mean something to them instead of, of that. I think if you want to have treat nights and you want to have, you know, days where you let them have those comfort foods, um, you can figure out other random ways to do it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we um, recently have been working with our pediatrician and um, addressing some digestive system and weight BMI stuff for one of our children. And um, 
So she was very clear, like the reward or the incentives are not food. <laughs> and then um, really uh, encouraging us to just look at like maybe two nights a week having dessert, not every night. So it does remain a treat. And um, yeah. I was yeah. I was worried how that would go down for our family. And it was actually a really easy transition. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So well, and even like. Uh, I'm a really big fan of substitutions over eliminations. So even like, for example, a family who loves dessert seven nights a week, maybe you just look at what's a, what's a different kind of dessert that we could have. So maybe on the other five nights of the week, we have fruit and it's a fun, like fruit salad, or we, you know, we make something fun out of it. Um, you know, figuring out different options of things you can do. So you're not taking away something that previously was really enjoyed, but you're just substituting and switching it over to something that's, yeah, maybe a little bit of a healthier choice. And then two nights a week, we do, we go all out and we have something that's, that's really fun and everybody enjoys it. I like that. Um, let's see what, what about the importance for our children of regularly eating so they don't feel mm-hmm. hungry Um, I know sometimes there could be food neglect issues um, from their past or even in utero before birth. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you definitely, and again, everyone's different. So watch your kiddo for these types of things. But if, if your gut is telling you that your child struggled with any food neglect issues, either before they came to you or even in utero, you know, if you've had a, a mom who really was struggling financially and was not able to eat regularly while she was pregnant or struggled with substance abuse issues that might have prevented her from eating regularly, um, we might see some, some neglect issues as kids grow up where the sensation of hunger is really triggering for them more so than for others. And so even feeding every two hours um, can be helpful. Small snacks, little pieces of fruit, um, cheese sticks, you know, whatever it is that that kind of works in your house. Um, but putting an alarm on your phone or something every two hours and just offering them food so that that sensation of hunger isn't as painful for them. Try it as an experiment, see if it works, and see if it does kind of curb those behaviors, um, seeing if that is something that maybe brings down some meltdowns, and then you've got your key there. Um, for other kids, you know, that might not be as strong of an issue. Um, and then I think we talked last time about sleep in terms of have those bedtime snacks and making sure there's something that would be sustainable for their blood sugar through the night, like a protein shake, like we talked about last time or um, something else that's high in protein and that can kind of really support them through the night so they don't have any of that uh, nighttime stuff where their blood sugar's dropping, they're waking up and they're struggling. Um, On the same token, hydration is very similar Um, and really just making sure that your kids are getting good water, honestly, like as much just plain water that you can do because juices tend to have a lot of sugar in them. And so um, if you can flavor the water naturally with some fruit, um, if they really do want something sweeter in the water, but um, putting water in water bottles, wherever they are sitting, just if you notice they're sitting in a certain spot playing a video game or something, go put a water bottle next to them. If they're sitting at the table doing homework, put a water bottle next to them. Um, in the car, make sure every time you get in the car, there's a water bottle and everybody's got it in a cup holder near their seat. 
Um, because if it's got a straw, we'll tend to drink from it and just creating those habits. Um, and that can be something that that's pretty easy and generally not too much of a battle is just increasing that hydration, which will help support their brain. Yes. And um, I know of a family that has a child that probably the last five or six years since potty training um, has really been very controlling around liquid intake and really uh-huh. resists um, the correct amount. And so I, I was just thinking, you know, many of our children struggle with constipation, digestive issues, and caprices. Um, and that can be trauma related or too little foods, diet. Um, what do you suggest um, for parents that have a child that is struggling with um, any of those issues? Yeah. Okay, so you said a lot of issues. I did, I did. So you said the first one, um, just refusing beverages? Yeah, like really limiting uh, intake of water, seemingly to control um, bathroom use, but but not sure. It could just be subconscious, right? I'm sure it is. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I would do experiments, and they, I mean, I'm sure these people have done a lot of stuff, so I don't want to. I don't really know their situation, but off the top of my head, if they just came up to me, the first thing I would do would be try different types of cups and bottles to see if it's, um, I mean like water bottles to see if it's, uh, like a sensory issue or anything oral. Um, cause some kids don't like the way certain things feel in their mouth or they don't like a cup and they'd rather have a straw. They don't like red. They'd rather have blue, like <laughs> go into Walmart and stand at the counter and say like, which is your favorite? I will buy three of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and figuring out if that's an issue. Um, the other thing I probably would then move towards is maybe more liquid-based foods um, that's a little bit sneakier. So even like a protein shake or um, like uh, sauces or um, like snacks that I can't even think of some but like some of the um the snack packs that you can squeeze um so it's a little bit more liquidy but even just to you know if it truly is that they're saying i don't want a beverage i don't want something in a pure liquid form then i'd go to something more in the mushy kind of form to see if you could kind of work up to it um but that's clearly also something where you're going to need to involve a therapist who can kind of get to the root of it um but just in the meantime while you're trying to get you know fluids into their body so they're not dehydrated because absolutely if they get dehydrated they're gonna for sure have emotional and behavioral problems um what was the other part of that question yeah and then i was just assuming issues yeah i was assuming that the lower fluid would lead to to bathroom issues with um potentially yeah but yeah Yeah, what about our kids who have um digestive constipation and caprices issues um, that could be trauma related. Do you have any guidance yeah. or suggestions? Um, and caprices. Uh, so again, for people who don't know, it's just the kids who are pooping um, in various places. Um, would be something definitely that probably is not nutritionally related. That's probably more trauma, psychological, could be fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, they probably would want to get a full neuropsych workup to figure out what's going on with that behavior. Um, for And even for kiddos who are struggling with frequent urination, um, that could be trauma-related. And for some kiddos, like um, I, I haven't read a lot on this, but I have a personal theory that 
kind of um, how our bodies remember our trauma. I think if your trauma happened in your your genital region of your body, I think it can also impact your ability to properly use the bathroom um, because the sensations might be off or the sensations might be triggering for you. And so getting a really good uh, psychological workup from a psychologist to figure out what's going on and how best to treat it is probably ideal. Um, there's also a good piece though, that I think is important nutritionally that, that can be looked at as well. In addition to those things, which is, uh, just your gut health. And there's been a lot of research coming out over the last 10 years that's showing us that actually 90% of your serotonin is created in your gut. And so by just treating the brain, when we're looking at serotonin issues, we're missing actually the origin and kind of where your, your um, serotonin levels come from. So anytime we're struggling with tension, anxiety, depression, it often manifests itself in the gut as well. It's completely connected. So we have butterflies in our stomach when we're nervous. We lose our appetite when we're upset. All of those things are connected. And so what can often happen is if we've been through a stressful situation and our body gets tightened up and we're not processing our food properly, so we're not digesting our food properly, maybe we end up with diarrhea or we end up with constipation, but for sure our body's not absorbing the nutrients properly because our muscles are all kind of messed up and tense. What that can do is that can limit the serotonin production in our brain and that's kind of how we feel better, right? So we end up with having more depression or anxiety. It's this vicious cycle that we've gotten caught up in. So um, kind of knowing your kid's poop is really important and knowing our own poop. Like if we're going through stressful situations ourselves and we're going over, you know, multiple days where we're not having a bowel movement or we're having painful bowel movements, those types of things are actually really important to pay attention to. Um, because they will actually impact our mood and our functioning. And there are some simple nutritional strategies that we can do that will help make sure our digestive system is working properly, even during those stressful seasons, so that our brain is getting the serotonin and all of the nutrients that it needs to manage the stressful situation that we're in. Yes. And I'm imagining that children that maybe don't have felt safety or are hypervigilant, um, that this would just add to what you're describing the cycle. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a vicious cycle. And yes. so sometimes then as a caregiver, we can come in and say, okay, like how about we introduce some new foods, maybe try a couple of things, some new substitutions that can maybe help the body relax, help the body absorb the nutrients better, help the digestive system to process the food better because um, for a lot of kids, too, if you're struggling with constipation and it hurts every time you go to the bathroom, you might not want to go and you might start refusing, um, even aside from any trauma that might have happened. And so really having open conversations about how you're doing with that and, like we talked about before, being very aware of, of how your own body is processing the food that you're putting in um, is really important. Yes. And we're generally eating what our kids are eating. So exactly. it's a good way to monitor. Yeah. Those three chicken nuggets that were left on the plate that we grabbed before we put in the dishwasher is our dinner. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so let's see. What about um, thinking about children's uh, control issues around food? I know particularly um, 
with new placements, but it can show up at different stages. Um, and sometimes it can appear as like manipulation or just like defiance. But um, I know you talked about TBRI, trust-based relational intervention, and, you know, what can we do for our kids that do present as really defiant or want to engage in power struggles, um, a lot of control around mealtime or snack time or food? Yeah. Um, so, and again, I mean, this is two different situations where you can do like my parents and say, you're going to sit at this table until you clean your plate which is how many of us were raised. Um, or you can just completely give in and every day they're dictating the menu and you're running out to whatever drive through they choose that day and, and serving everybody that way. Um, and then there's like a whole spectrum in the middle. And, um, and I think we, based on your relationship with a child, you're going to choose in that spectrum because it might be that the first day they move in, you're more on the side of, Hey, you know what, let's go to any, any restaurant you want tonight. Um, you're going through, it's been a really rough day. What's your favorite food? What can I get you tonight? But I always stress, like I would say, we don't do this all the time, but you know, sometimes, sometimes we're able to do things like this. And I think today's one of those days. Um, but then moving a little bit more, I think there's, um, there's a great, and I'm blanking on his name right now, but I can get it for you. We can put it in the show notes. There's a great guy on Instagram um, who does a lot of connection through cooking. And he will invite, for children that are have those kind of control issues, invite them into the kitchen and cook together. And to give them some control over meal planning and have them helping you to pick out recipes, have a shared Pinterest board or anything that would work for them so that they can start influencing a little bit of what you're making. Um so that maybe you're going to do a little bit more of that balance where it's going to maybe have some vegetables, but also maybe they're in charge of a side dish and they're in charge of dessert. They're in charge of something that's a part of the meal. Um, I think also if it's, if it's extreme, you're probably going to need to involve a therapist to kind of talk about why they're completely refusing to eat. Um, but I think inviting them into the process, inviting them into the kitchen, it's going to take you twice as long to cook and twice as long to clean up but it may be worth it in the end because they have more buy-in at the table. Um, and so we had, you know, um, we had older kids in our house, but we constantly said, you know, within reason, you know, text me what you want from the grocery store and I will try to get it to you within 48 hours. That was kind of our rule in our house. Um, I can't go right away all the time and get you what you want, but I'm going to try within reason to get those things within 48 hours and kind of, saying yes as much as possible and bringing them into the conversation can be helpful. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And, um, thinking about, um, yeah, that cooking together, uh, it's interesting because some of us may have an ability to like do that with a spouse or it may be a very stressful space to share while cooking or while doing dishes. And, um, so I can only imagine it's like, if it's a connecting activity and bonding activity, then it helps around that issue too. Um, but if we're not calm or if we're stressed out, um, I know different people have different territory around like my kitchen that, you know, can be examined as well. (laughs) Yeah. Which it goes back to that flexibility piece of if you're, if you're inviting some of these children into your home, you're going to need to be real flexible. And it might be that you look at your week and you're like, I am so stressed on these days. That's not going to work, but I could do it 
for Saturday lunch. (laughs) (laughs) That's the time when I will choose to be calm and present. I'm going to do a breathing exercise beforehand and then we'll do it together. You know, figuring out, or maybe if they're older, you know, they get Thursday dinner and Thursday dinner can be whatever they want. Um, and it could be disgusting, but everyone will eat it. You know, it's just, it's allowing them to have a little bit of control. Um, so that I tell you, I've eaten some really disgusting things that were meant to be. But I'm sure most parents have, right? It's Mother's Day and you're sitting there eating the soggiest cereal and the driest toast and you smile and you say thank you so much. Um, so it's the same thing. Like maybe you give them one night of a week where, you know, they're eight years old, but they get to create dinner and it helps just break through some of that defiance. Because I I never like the word manipulation. I feel like it's it's they're seeking to get their needs met and there is a need behind this behavior. So if they're sitting there with their arms crossed, refusing to eat the food you made and they're staring at you, they're trying to get a need met. So what is going on? Because nobody wakes up in the morning saying, I hope I ruined dinner. Right. Something's going on. Yeah, and if you're addressing that immediate obvious behavior it's missing the mark. <laughs> exactly. And you're just going to keep having the behavior over and over again. But if you take some time and maybe this involves you and your partner going out for, for dinner or a late night conversation saying, what do you, like, what is it? Let's be a detective. What is going on behind this? Because everybody's hungry. Everybody wants to eat. So what is going on? Yes. And that's the worst when you know your child is hungry <laughs> and you just know that once they get food in them, it will yeah. start to get better. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, what about um, for a child who uh, does need to eat regularly? You have that kind of two hour snacking schedule, like you mentioned earlier, and then they don't eat much at their hot meal time. They're kind of yeah. like the the snacker. Um, do we need to be concerned? Or are we just strategic about what those snacks include or um you know there's that fear of like you're ruining your dinner when yeah. they're when they're scavenging they're like so hungry and we're eating in 30 minutes yeah um again I feel like I say this disclaimer all the time depends <laughs> how long you've known them yeah so I think if they have had a recent trauma or you have known them less than six months and you're doing an every two hour feeding plan then I would say dinner should look like a snack And dinner is one of those two hour windows where maybe, you know, it might be chicken and some vegetables, but it's a much smaller portion than what you would normally give to them. Um, And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, So I think over time, uh, you may want to go a little bit um, further in between their meals. I think with school and with other things, depending on how old they are, you know, that might just naturally have to happen. but, uh, but I think having those types of expectations, um, we're doing a little bit of food every two hours. It's, it's like a medical intervention. Like it's like medicine every two hours, you know, we're giving them nutritional food every two hours. And just, as I mentioned school, it just made me think, um, I have worked with a family who had a kiddo who really couldn't go that long without food. And so they found that they were having meltdowns like around four o'clock uh, almost every day. And so we ended up having the, um, the school social worker or the nurse that switched off, uh, give them a snack at school, like at two 30, their school got out at three 
And between that three and getting on the bus and getting home, by the time they got home, it was too late. And so putting that in the IEP and saying they need a nutritious snack at 2.30 and they get to leave class, they get a movement break, they get to go down to the office, they get to have a snack, some personal attention at 2.30 really helped with that transition of coming home from school. And they arrived and it actually eliminated those four o'clock meltdowns because they did get the 2.30 snack. So even through school, seeing if you can partner with your school and, um, you know, drop off, maybe it means you're dropping off five snacks every Monday that sits in the social worker's office all week. Um, but if you've got a good school team that might want to work with you, you can figure some things out that way. Yes. And um, do you have anything else um, that you want to add? Any resources, practical tips um, for our parents on um, strategies they can use to help build up their kids' brains healing yeah. with food, with nutrition? Um, yeah, just, I would love to give you some practical food ideas, um, some things that might be good substitutions if you're in that stage where you're trying to introduce some healthy foods. Um, so, uh, there's an amino acid that's called L-tryptophan. Most of us know that from Turkey. It's that tryptophan kind of uh, acid that's in Turkey. It's actually not just in Turkey. It's in any food that's a high protein. So meat, cheese, yogurt, eggs, fish, um, all of those contain levels of tryptophan. And tryptophan is the main amino acid that's used to create serotonin, which is why like the turkey coma, it's turkey coma is usually because you ate too much. It's not really <laughs> the turkey. Um, but there is a, a boost to our mood and just a more peaceful feeling when we have serotonin in our body. We're less depressed, we're less anxious. And so making sure that you are including high protein foods into your child's diet is really essential. Um, the other piece with that is um, healthy carbs, not all carbs, but making a healthy choice of a good carb can actually like super boost the tryptophan. It actually um, assists the tryptophan in getting to the brain and making that a more secure transition. That makes sense. Um, and healthy fats help the brain absorb the tryptophan. So what we're always looking for with a snack is a healthy protein, a high quality protein, a healthy carb, and a healthy fat. And when you can combine those three together in a meal or a snack, you're really like, you're looking at that as medicine. Um, and that can really boost the serotonin production in our brains. Um, so I often say like, if you are, using food as medicine as much as possible try to choose organic i know it's going to mean a little bit more expensive but it's actually going to give you you know the medicine that your brain needs so um there are like some high protein snack ideas would be like um some greek yogurt is a really good one if kids will tolerate that i know there's a lot of sensory issues um cheese i used to do um like a fun charcuterie board. It sounds much more fancy than it was, but I would cut up some cheese and some nuts and some cucumbers and we'd have a little hummus and it'd make a little board and the kids would sit down at the table and they thought they were super fancy when they got home from school. But really I was trying to put those three things together on a plate so they would eat them all at the same time and really support their brain after school. Um, eggs contain an ingredient called phosphatidylserine. And that is a fantastic ingredient for the brain. Um, it's in the egg yolk. So you want to make sure that you're eating the yolks. 
Um, so creating something like a breakfast sandwich or a breakfast wrap um, can be really good because you can very easily have a protein, a carb, and a fat nicely wrapped up in um, a breakfast sandwich. Um, protein shakes. So again, for kids who might just want to drink something, um, for teenagers, that can be a, a good selling point. Um, putting some chia seeds or some flax seeds in there can be really helpful. Um, and then trail mix can be sometimes a good transition food because you can get kind of the not so healthy trail mix to start, get them thinking they like trail mix. And then over the next few months, maybe you make your own trail mix and maybe you get some recipes and then you don't have so many M&Ms and maybe you have a little bit more um, like dark chocolate. Actually, if it's 70% or higher is actually very good for your brain. And so, you know, moving away from the M&Ms and maybe choosing some 70% dark chocolate could be a way to introduce um, those types of things. And then um, the other two things are things kind of to avoid if you can, if you're gonna have some, some battles in your house over time when you're ready to start avoiding things. Um, the two biggest ones are, um, like sugary stimulants, particularly aspartame. I know a lot of people are probably gonna be mad at me because they like love their <laughs> Diet Coke and they need it to be a parent. Um, but uh, there's a lot that's starting to come out about aspartame and it's linked to irritability and depression. And so if you or your kids are struggling with irritability, it could actually be coming from the aspartame. So decreasing aspartame would be helpful or eliminating it altogether. And then trans fats, um, there's some research that shows it might actually reduce serotonin production. So, um, and trans fats are in all the good stuff, like um, <laughs> commercially baked uh, pies, cakes, cookies, all of those things, um, microwavable popcorn, frozen pizzas, which I know many of us live on, <laughs> um, any fried foods like French fries, donuts, fried chicken, that's all trans fats um, and non-dairy coffee creamers. Um, they all contain kind of those are the highest categories of, of trans fats. And so if there's something maybe where you're open to decreasing, um, that is kind of a great way to help with their serotonin production and their mood management is to take away some of those ingredients and increase more of that high protein um, carb and healthy fat. Yes. And what do you recommend for, um, wraps or breakfast sandwiches if we're trying to stay with good carbs? Good carbs. Yeah. I mean, there's do do great, like <laughs> it's again, like it's the, um, so for example, at our house, we have target has some wraps that have no preservatives in them. And they're just like tortillas. Um, but if you look through, you can see like some of them have a ton of preservatives and crap in them. And then some of them are just more natural and organic. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with a little bit of carbs and especially your brain needs them. So, um, you know, getting um, some like avocado, some guacamole, putting it with your egg, wrapping it up in there and you've got a perfect sandwich. Um, you know, we do like um, a breakfast sandwich, like on a really nice, high quality, organic English muffin, um, especially if it's a whole grain. If you can actually move to whole grains, that's really great. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> choose your battles. Um, but again, like you could choose the American cheese that's like more processed or you could get a good quality cheddar cheese and put a slice of that on there with your egg. And those types of just 
simple switches, maybe the kids wouldn't notice as much. And then you can get those, um, those high quality ingredients into their brain. Yes. Okay. Well, that sounds great. And um, what if you have a child that used to eat everything mm-hmm. and then uh, maybe around age four or five um, won't eat um, meat or um, yeah. things that have to be chewed more? Is that like a yeah. red flag of sensory or is that a developmental transition, a stage, or it just child by child? Yeah, I mean, kids are weird, let's be honest. <laughs> and sometimes you're like, but you love this last year. Like, why don't you like this anymore? Um, so I think, again, depending on your relationship with the child and how long you've known them is how much of a battle you want to have over it. I think if you've got a good, solid attachment and they've been with you for a long time, um, you can kind of push it a little bit. Um, I think there's also a place for, you know, do you push it every day or do you push it some days on the days that you have the energy to challenge it? And then again, if you don't know this child very well, or they just went through a recent trigger or a recent trauma, that could be a reaction. Um, sensory issues absolutely can develop over time. And all of a sudden they're much more sensitive. That would probably, I always say like be a detective and kind of, it's hard because we're so busy and things are, we don't have time to reflect but creating time after the kids go to bed, instead of putting the TV on, just taking 20 minutes to reflect on what is it about this food? Is there anything else that's a similar texture to this food that they're also refusing? And is there a pattern here that I'm missing because I'm going so fast all day long? Um, did something happen the last time we ate that food that may have triggered this reaction? Like, did I yell at somebody or, you know, did something upset them that maybe we need to recover from um you know what what is the pattern what's the link what's the need behind the behavior um and then yeah if you can't figure it out obviously inviting a professional to kind of look at is this a sensory issue is this a trauma issue is this just a weird three months and we're going to get back on track and all of a sudden they love noodles again you know those types of things happen right right yes i love how you invite us into like individuating like each child has specific needs and um how long they're in our family is a factor and then to be a detective to really know them best and get to know them so we can parent them in the best way possible um yeah yeah well this has been such a helpful conversation i know um i have lots of ideas always after talking with you and in this podcast today of things I'm going to try with my own children and with my spouse and our family. (laughs) And I'm sure our listeners do as well. So thank you. Thank you so much, Trish. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.